Hello, and welcome to Breast Cancer Conversations, a podcast brought to you by survivingbreastcancer.org. I'm Laura Carfing, breast cancer survivor and founder of survivingbreastcancer.org, a nonprofit organization providing community, education, and resources to empower those diagnosed with breast cancer and their caregivers from day one and beyond. Hello, my friends, and thank you for tuning in to another episode of Breast Cancer Conversations. As always, I am so humbled and flattered that you show up each week to hear our stories, learn from our SBC friends and supporters, and hopefully leave with a sense of community that you are not alone. A couple of quick updates. So in addition to our podcast, I would also like to invite you to join our Thursday Night Thrivers Meetup. It's a no agenda meetup where we share our personal experiences with breast cancer, ask questions, and get peer-to-peer support. Open to all stages, caregivers, and allies. All are welcome. We also host an NBC webinar series every other Sunday at 4 p.m. Eastern and a monthly book club. You can find out more about all of our upcoming events and webinars at survivingbreastcancer.org forward slash events. I would also absolutely love it if you showed us some love and started following us on social media. You can follow us on Twitter at SBC underscore ORG and on Instagram at survivingbreastcancer.org. We also just started a new handle specifically for the podcast, which is Breast Cancer Conversations. But today I am so excited to be speaking with three amazing women. We have Lisa, Natalia, and Sheila, who are all joining us today. They are joining us on behalf of our NBC Life, which is also another fun podcast that I highly encourage you to check out and to listen to. One of the things I love about my job is being able to bring these amazing and incredible resources to you, our listeners, and to collaborate with other podcast hosts because, yes, hashtag podcast life. So without further ado, let's jump into today's conversation where we're talking about all things NBC. I think there people are more open to hearing about NBC stories and medically speaking or through research, kind of trying to find a way to live with NBC instead of passing it on to early stage um, people living with early stage breast cancer. But I do think that it's been not easy to have conversation about NBC and bringing it to life. Even before when I was an early stager, you have the assumption that living with metastatic disease kind of feels like you're at the end of your rope. It's almost as if you're past the time to help. Being in a community with other NBC people kind of opens up this idea that there are so many people living with NBC. There are so many people who have lots of stories to share and to tell about thriving and living with NBC. Welcome to the conversation. Hi, my name is Sheila McLeod and I live in Illinois. I'm about 12 miles from the Missouri border, um, about four hours from Chicago. I am a 25-year Air Force veteran, and I found out I had metastatic breast cancer um, while I was active duty. My mom was diagnosed in 2001. 2004, she died of metastatic breast cancer um, um, that had spread to her lungs and then I didn't know metastatic meant stage four. Five years later, I received the diagnosis and I felt a sneeze and the sneeze was the cancer rubbing up on my ribs. Oh, wow. So um, I had to retire from the military and that's when I said that I was going to better understand the disease because I didn't, I didn't know Black women got breast cancer because Black women don't talk about being sick. We, we just don't talk about being sick in our culture. Um, 
And when it happened, I said that I am going to do what I can. So, oops, sorry. I'm going to do what I can that my daughter never, or anybody's daughter's son, never has to worry about this disease. So that's why I advocate for metastatic breast cancer. I think it's, we have strong, resilient advocates out that are passionate, even though they're facing this disease, they put disease behind them and they want um, people to know that, you know, um, they want to help, you know, they want, they want more research. So that's who I am. And thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned that your mother had breast cancer. Was that something that you were aware of when she was diagnosed? I know we mentioned a lot of times we keep this stuff to our close to our vest. We don't talk about it. And we also want to be strong for our family and our children. Was that something that you and her spoke about while she was going through her cancer diagnosis? No, because I was in the military. I was in Okinawa, Japan. September 11th happened. I get the call maybe a day or two. Mom has breast cancer. I'm like, what? Lumpectomy. What's the lumpectomy? Um, chemo. I thought you get chemo, you fixed. Right, right. <laughs> but, you know, three years later, um, that spread to her lungs. And I found out, you know, I was talking to my mom. She forgot my birthday. And I was like, mm, my mom never forgets my birthday. August 17th, um, I went home July 31st because I was in Virginia. August 17th, uh, she passed. Mm. So I never, I don't know what I blame. I thought you walk the walk, you walk a, a Coleman walk or whatever. You know, I did my diligence, you know, for breast yeah. cancer. But soon did I find out there's more to it than that so they make um, it look easy with the pink boas and all these women taking over the streets and walking i am completely there with you lisa tell us a little bit about your story um i understand that you also had some family history with breast cancer as well yeah um, my first introduction to breast cancer was when i was 12 and my grandmother who i was very close to decided to show me the top of her scars and so she uh had a pretty radical uh, mastectomy in 1971 and was told she had six months to live. Uh, literally, she went in for a mole removal and came out without a breast. So that's just the crazy 1970 medical story for you. And uh, she was amazing. She was able to uh, live until she was 95 and die of congestive heart failure, basically of old age instead of breast cancer. My whole family, uh, I'm, I'm indeed the fourth generation of my family to have um, breast cancer, but I'm the first uh, in my family to be diagnosed de novo um, metastatic. So I, because of my family history, I had um, mammograms and ultrasounds actually from the age of 35 and was considered high risk, certainly, but all of my family prior to me, was, they were diagnosed with, um, with breast cancer, all early stage breast cancer, and very similar to what Sheila said, 
you know, you it's or, or what you said, actually, Laura, that you do the chemo, maybe have the mastectomy, have a lumpectomy and uh, you're good to go and you'll die of old age. Uh, and certainly that is the case with my mother, my two aunts who are still living with with being um, being uh, early stage uh, breast cancer. They're doing fine. So everyone in my family was quite shocked with my diagnosis. Um, part of my story is that it was clearly missed. I kept on going back to my OBGYN uh, twice, actually, in both 2016 and 2017, saying my 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 breast tissue does not feel normal. Uh, there was no lump. It, it um, and I had mammograms and ultrasounds every time, and they kept on coming back you're fine. And then finally, um, in August, 2017, um, my nipple inverted on my right breast. And that was the, I, I, you know, I clearly said, well, I know that's breast cancer. So, so let's go back again. We did a biopsy at that point. And so they determined it was breast cancer. And then the, the MRI, as I was preparing for surgery, was required. And that's what discovered that I discovered the, the METs on my spine. And I, so I was diagnosed in August, 2017 with oligometastatic breast cancer, um, de novo oligometastatic breast cancer. So I only had, um, two, two to three spots on my spine at diagnosis. And certainly, um, that was a shock, uh, and shock for my family because we we've been down this breast cancer road for a long time, but it was always early stage. And again, dismissed as something you could manage. Uh, certainly everyone in my family has been able to manage it. And so for me, that was, um, that was the beginning of my true education of, of what breast cancer really was all about. Lisa, I want to take a moment to define some of the terms that you were mentioning. So first being the metastatic de novo, being diagnosed de novo. And what that means is that you're diagnosed automatically with metastasis. That is to say that the breast cancer has spread beyond just the breast and into other regions of the body, whether it's in the bones, the liver, the lungs, the brain, etc. And so what this means for patients who are diagnosed metastatic de novo, it means that they were never diagnosed with an earlier stage cancer. They were automatically diagnosed metastatic stage four. The other term that you mentioned is oligometastatic breast cancer. Oligo in this sense means few. And so oligometastatic breast cancer would mean that there are few mets within the body in these other external places, whether it's the lungs, the spine, the bones, the liver, et cetera. And so, you know, I don't have an exact definition of what few means, anywhere between three and seven, possibly 10. But the idea is that it is not widespread and that there are few mets outside of the breast. So that's where we get the term oligo, metastatic breast cancer. So Lisa, can you explain to us then why this type of diagnosis is important? Now, the reason why that's even important is that there are studies about uh, on on individuals who are considered oligometastatic, that perhaps there's different treatments or ways to approach it. And perhaps your outcomes may be, um, may be extended, but you know, sure. I also know people who've been oligometastatic and that's, you know, an extended time frame is not necessarily true. As you said, we don't know quite why we have unicorns. We need to find out why exactly. and then, rep- and then replicate that. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, I think even within this umbrella, this huge umbrella of breast cancer, now that we're in it, 
there are so many subcategories, so many subsets of who right. and how we're identifying with and the tribes that we're trying to form because we want to be supported by people who are going through similar experiences. And so mm-hmm. I think when we're talking about de novo metastatic, that in and of itself is an own class because it's you're you're being proactive as you were mentioning, Lisa, doing these high risk screenings and even advocating for yourself saying that, you know, something doesn't feel right, but it is so hard, you know, with some of the technology that we have with the mammograms and the ultrasounds. And, you know, a lot of times, yes, it is a lump, but then you also have the lobular and other types of characteristics that aren't necessarily um, showing up on the technology that we're using to screen. So there's, it's very complex. And so, you know, I appreciate you sharing these stories and giving voice to this um, you and Sheila both to the subset of, you know, being diagnosed immediately at a metastasis level. Yeah. And if I want to, I want to add, Laura, I think it's really important um, to say that I was, it was discovered that I actually uh, have mixed ductal and lobular characteristics to my breast cancer. Mm. And it was discovered a year and a half after I was initially diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer. So the initial biopsy of my tumor did not, did not reveal at that moment that I was a mixed ductal and lobular case. Mm. And why that's interesting is that lobular, of course, is very hard to detect often because it, it, the cells grow in sheets and not in lumps necessarily. And also our friends who have inflammatory breast cancer have the same situation where it sometimes a lump does not form. And then the other piece that's important to note is that, um, in a, you know, if you have dense breast tissue, I tell everybody who will listen to me, uh, that if you have dense breast tissue, just please demand an MRI. Yes. Because for me, I was told from very early, you have very dense breast tissue and we really can't see anything. So in my case, probably there's seven years of really useless microfilm, like, you know, uh, you know, ultrasound and, um, you know, mammography that just really isn't worth the, the screen it's printed on, uh, because it wasn't going to be detected unless you had an MRI. And that is make sure. A huge soapbox of mine too, talking about the dense breast tissue and, you know, that your results on your mammogram are only as good as your density, right? And, you know, you get these letters in the mail, not every state even gives you one of those letters to notify you that you have dense tissue. But then like when you read down in the small print, it was like, oh, all clear based on this particular type of screening. So like really do we know? So I'm, I'm with you there, letting everyone know about that and what that means. Now, Natalia, your story is a little bit different than Lisa and Sheila's. So whereas they were diagnosed metastatic de novo, you were actually diagnosed early stage and had a recurrence. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience with breast cancer? Sure. So I was diagnosed three months after my son was born. So that was in 2017. Yes, that sounds right. So Yes, 2017. And um, I was breastfeeding at the time and I just noticed a lump. I thought that it had to, been, it had to be a blood duct, duct from breastfeeding. So I did everything that everyone tells you to do to release your ducts, which is like taking warm showers, you know, squeezing them out, make sure you're over breastfeeding, pump, um, pump. And nothing was going away. So I called my sister and she just like, get into the doctors because... 
if you have mastitis, like it hurts and you'll need to be put on antibiotics and get in them before it gets worse. So luckily, um, the person I saw is the first time I ever saw this OB because my OB had just moved out of state mm. and she um, was just like, you know, you're not, you don't have any of the symptoms from mastitis. So let's just take a look inside and see what's going on. It's probably a block, uh, blocked duct or something growing, but we shouldn't be too worried. And then just kind of escalated from there. So I was diagnosed with early stage about two B, maybe um, something more, but they just weren't sure based off of the size of the tumors and how many lymph nodes were affected. So I'm smiling. That the whole, sounds like my story too. <laughs> yeah. So I never know what to say. I just say what my original diagnosis was, but it could have been um, a later stage, not mm-hmm. four, but stage three. Anyway, so you go through your year of being on um, active treatment. So going through chemotherapy and mm-hmm. doing the radiation and having the surgeries. And I stopped um, active treatment in November of 2018. And by January of 2019, I started feeling symptomatic, primarily on my, my back. Hmm. so they just did x-rays and a ct without contrast and they weren't able to find anything but i thought you know i had cancer so i need to take care of my body now and really like think about what to do so i started seeing other specialists and other doctors for my back so going through physical therapy seeing my family practitioner who then referred me to a spine specialist and, you know, seeing a specialist, like you have to schedule months in advance mm-hmm. unless it's an emergency. So I was just seeing a physical therapist up until I saw the spine specialist and she ordered CT with contrast. And they had discovered that um, the breast cancer had metastasized on my spine and several other places like on my hip. I had like a small little one on my rib. So that was in 2019. So since then, I've been... Um, through probably three different treatments and have had radiation maybe three or four times in different parts of my body. And then just last um, winter in November, I had found out that my um, cancer had metastasized to my brain. So that was just treating that. And then now, so, so far things are so good. Treatment seems to be working, but yeah, it kind of all just snowballed really. Yeah. It just went from, from, I wish I, there was a little bit of time before I had progression. I know that sounds weird to say, but you know, just like, it's just from one thing to another, you hear about people progressing right. maybe like years and years after their original mm-hmm. diagnosis, but it just I kind know, of went I feel like from it's always like year four, right before they get the benchmark of year five or year nine, right before they hit milestone 10 or something like that. So, and I always like people get diagnosed at literally, I mean, it's never a good time to be diagnosed, but it always feels like it's like right before the holidays or right before like a significant birthday or anniversary. Like you hear stories and everyone um, talks about just so mine isn't any different really than those people's stories, but yeah. So, and how, what were some of the symptoms and how did you know that it metastasized to your brain? Was that just through a routine like MRI or scan, like every three months that people typically get or was there... Well, you got to love insurance, right? Because they don't want to pay for anything that they don't need to pay for. So um, I have a really great team um, at at my oncologist's office. And 
it's just basically like if you're if you have any symptoms, let us know what it is. Mm -hmm. And one of the symptoms was my under my chin was starting to get really numb. Mm. and like I just didn't have feeling there and it, it could be a plethora of other things but my uh, um, nurse practitioner who I love very much she was just like you know what let's just do a brain MRI she's like numbness is a sign that something can be there and she's like we know you're stage four and uh, unfortunately um, my subtypes to fur were ER um, positive and HER2 positive when I was originally diagnosed however that HER2 was just like barely heard too. They had to do more um, sensitive testing to make sure I, I fell into that category. And when they had biopsied my bones, there wasn't a HER2 positive. So just ER positive. Anyways, um, yeah, I started feeling numbness on my face and then um, some like numbness on my, on one side of my body, on my right hand. Mm -hmm. And then it started to um, kind of, I guess like twitch. And there was some speculation that I could have been in a reaction to one certain drug I was taking and some steroids I was on. So sure. um, they finally did the, the MRI and that's when they discovered um, a, mm. some tumor and some plaque in my brain. Yeah, Natalia, thank you so much for sharing that story yeah. and informing our listeners about recurrence and not just recurring in one spot, but also metastasizing onto from your spine onto your brain. I know we always have questions about this, so I really appreciate you sharing the signs and the symptoms. And as always and everything, we wish you all of the best and, you know, treatments and cures cannot come fast enough. Can you all share a little bit about how breast cancer has impacted your relationship with friends and family? Okay. Well, I, I mean, I have a story of when I was first diagnosed. So when I, when it was a shock, as I described earlier, um, and I'm hormone positive. Uh, so Natalia, um, thank you for reminding me to explain. I was, hor I'm, hor I'm, hor I'm, I'm hormone positive and HER2 negative. So for me, um, it was a shock. Uh, and I, it took me four days to tell my husband. I couldn't tell him and, and, and he was with me when I was getting all of these tests done. And then I had, I remember changing from my MRI uh, and the, my doctor at the time, my oncologist at the time uh, asked for a, a rapid read of the MRI because I guess she suspected. And so she told me while I was changing in, as I was getting out of the MRI and it took me four days from that changing room to actually say the words to my husband. Uh, so that's, um, that pretty much sums up my early, <laughs> my early days in, in, in learning to live with this disease. Uh, I am, have quickly gone over to the other side in that I also agree with you, Laura, that talking about it, talking about the scary is what brings the light into the room. And it's not, doesn't diminish how scary it is, or how terrible or hard it can be, but by talking about it and by um, being proactive uh, about finding resources for others, helping my family members in making sure that all of them, and yes, they all get MRIs at this point, and my family actually resides in Canada, and so getting MRIs is actually a little bit more challenging uh, I guess you could argue that. Uh, and so all of them instantly got MRIs as a result of my diagnosis. And um, okay. so 
that's how I've managed it. We talk about it and I decide to live in, in metastatic breast cancer land fully and openly. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and that's, that's, that's just how I've decided to, to live. Lisa, and what was going on in your mind during these, these four days? Were you processing? What were you thinking? Yeah, it, it was uh, a lot of mental jujitsu. Um, uh, it was me preparing myself to devastate another life, not just my own. Um, and, and the ripple effect of this diagnosis on my family. And so with our children who were in high school and in college at the time, uh, the choice was made. Uh, once I told my husband, uh, there was a choice in telling them I have breast cancer. But as I told you earlier, breast cancer in our family is kind of, it's like uh, today's Friday. Right. Mm-hmm. Mom has breast cancer. It's, we expected it to happen a little earlier than we thought because I was supposed to get it when I was about 63. That's pretty much on target with the rest of my family. Yeah. Post menopause, breast cancer is coming down the pike. And so I was pre menopause. And so it was a little, that was a little bit of a surprise, but no big deal. You know, Nana lived till she was whatever, 95, this is going to be fine. But we chose not to tell them the full extent of my disease until after my youngest child had gotten all of his college applications out. We just decided, let's just keep things as simple as possible. I'm deciding or figuring out how I'm doing on this current treatment. Yep. And, uh, and then we were able to tell them when uh, a little bit, a few months after my initial diagnosis. That's how I decided to, mm-hmm. um, to handle it with my children initially. That's so helpful. And to be able to communicate with your children with age-appropriate information, you know, really just assessing everything that's happening in their lives and being able to find an opportune time to deliver this news that, as you mentioned, will be life-altering. Sheila, can we turn to you? I think initially, well, I've been living with it for 11 years. Um, Congratulations. That's amazing. Thank you. Um. It was hard. Because it was the same disease that killed my mom. Mm -hmm. That stole her from me. And I didn't have time to process it because, sorry. Because I had to be there for everybody else. So I can't break down because if I break down, everybody else is going to break down. And to tell my dad, you know, he could potentially lose one of his daughters to breast cancer, like he lost his wife, was... I, I never had time to process it. I never... You go from being 25 years in the military to, oh, you got stage four breast cancer that's in your ribs and liver to, oh, now you have to retire. Um, now you have to be on treatment the rest of your life. You know, then my, you know I only have one daughter and, you know, I told her, she talking about, well, I'm gonna have a nervous breakdown. I was like, well, you gonna have a nervous breakdown by yourself because I'm not, I gotta, you know, be strong, you know. And it's, you know, 
How old was your daughter at the time? She was 20, uh, um, 21. She was in college, University of Toledo. Mm -hmm. And she wanted to drop out of college. And I said, I was not going to let cancer rob her of her future. Then you go from sitting in the room, well, the average is three to five years. But then you go to 11 years. So we really don't talk about it now because everybody thinks I'm this strong black woman. I'm always brave and always strong. And But, but that's not always the case, you know. So I, I, it took me a long time to process it. But then you go on the internet and you read, well, you know, I, was, I can remember my best friend, I'm sitting there crying. And she said, well, what's wrong? I said, well, my daughter, I want to see her go to college. And, you know, and she was like, well, how, how do you know that's not going to happen? She said, quit going on the internet, reading the bad stories, read the good stories of women and men who are living longer with stage four breast cancer. And I was like, Oh, you got a point. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I just, we, we really don't talk about it. I, I just, I guess I just want my, want them to not think about it and just let me think about it, you know, because um, I have three sisters and that's why I do what I do because I don't ever want them to go through what I, right. I, I always tell them I took one for the team and I did. I don't ever want them to go yeah. through this. This is a beast. So it, 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 um, have your, has your daughter or your sisters done any like genetic testing or are they getting more, um, high risk screenings because of your diagnosis and your mother's diagnosis? Yes. They, they did the BRCA and different things like that. But, um, so far, um, and I pray never that they have to go through this. Um, I know. I just pray that it ends with me. Um, you know, then my dad, he worries and I have to call him like, okay, I got a good scan, you know, make sure that he's happy. So it's like when you take, when you have, like I said, when you have metastatic breast cancer, sorry. Yeah. Those are tough conversations. My nose bleeds because my platelets are low. <laughs> so that's another thing you have to worry about. But, um I guess I just never, it, it took me a long time to process it. And just, to, I think it's still taking my family, even 11 years later to process it. That That's what I have. But Well, and like you're saying, it's living with breast cancer, living with metastat, uh, metastatic breast cancer. It's, I don't think the processing ever ends because we're going through it. And, you know, on one of our other podcasts, we were talking a lot about grief and, the woman who was speaking and trying to help us understand what grief is kind of the light bulb went off when she said, you can grieve while you're processing. It doesn't have to happen afterwards. It's not like the event stops. Now you can grieve. And then the grieving stops. It's like these kind of like these circles that go like smaller and wider and smaller and wider. And just kind of like, we don't necessarily know what always is going to trigger us. Um, I remember I'd be on driving to work, sunny, beautiful day, and I'd just start bawling, like get to work, mascara is running, I am a wreck, hot flash happening, and I'm like, I can't handle life right now. Like, I just need to take a personal sick day because <laughs> this is not going well. Um, for no reason. Like just out of the blue. And you know, I think our our minds are very powerful and we process things and continue. And Sheila, I'm you know, thank you so much for sharing 
sharing these. I know these are difficult conversations, um, but I know that it's helpful for everyone who's listening and watching also to know, like, we resonate with this. We, it's hard for everybody. And this brings me to my third question, where I want to know how the three of you all got connected and started this fabulous podcast called Our NBC Life, because we know that our voices are strong. We know we're not going through this alone. We know that whatever we're going through, someone out there is listening and is getting inspiration from us, knowing that they're not suffering in silence. And so I would love to hear how our NBC life got started, how you all met each other, and for our listeners to know that there is another podcast out there in addition to Breast Cancer Conversations for anyone who is listening who is interested in specifically NBC topics. Check out our NBC life. I guess I'll start, but I have to say that our NBC life is a podcast that is a team sport. And uh, I love... I love the language that Sheila uses at times that evokes this, you know, I'm taking one for the whole team. Um, We are a team. Uh, So it started where I was diagnosed in 2017, uh, quickly in in early 2018, when I um, sort of had my, my legs underneath me at that point, I started volunteering uh, with a nonprofit that was fundraising just for metastatic breast cancer research. So I quickly understood that that's something that I needed to focus on, uh, that it was an area that needed attention. And from there, I was introduced through a support group from my treatment um, research cancer center where I get treated here in New York City. I met a bunch of people, just a power. I mean, that support group is just a a powerhouse of um, of advocates. And so I quickly was schooled by these incredible women. And then there from there, I was introduced to share cancer support as a and and because I'm a clinical therapist. uh, At least that's one of one of my one of my careers that I've had in my life um, I, as a clinical therapist, I thought, you know what, I can utilize my some of my skills for uh, to lead support groups. And so I did that. Uh, I also started leading webinars on issues related to the metastatic breast cancer community for share cancer support. Quickly from there, I felt like uh, those webinars were great and all. Um, but they're one and done. And yeah, they live sometimes on YouTube, but not all the time. And so I felt like this is really, these are really important conversations. The metastatic breast cancer community needs those conversations to be more widely available. And so I started talking to the people at SHARE about different ways to do that and made the proposal at the end of, um, at the end of 2019 that I think a podcast would be a good idea. And I think you and I've talked about this, you know, there's a low barrier to entry to podcasting, but there is a high barrier, at least I would say to a good podcast. And, uh, you know, so it requires um, a lot of effort, but again, I, I uh, made the proposal. They were saying, you know what, we don't think that's a good idea, Lisa. I mean, it was a fine idea, Lisa, but you know, maybe not now. Well, the pandemic hit. 
And then clearly there was a re-alignment um, of how are we going to service the metastatic breast cancer community in an effective way when we can't have in-person conferences and so forth. And then they, they literally just said, you know, I know we said it didn't sound like a good thing now, but now we think it's a great idea. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so quickly uh, on a dime, we um, I was able to just have a, a small little team of people that thought that this this idea was was a good one. And from there, we started figuring out how are we going to build this? So for me, the key thing was that everyone on the team should be living with metastatic breast cancer, that it really was for us, by us, and it was for our stories, the way we want to tell them, the priorities that are important to us, and that we would bring in experts and people who are advocating for us who don't necessarily have metastatic breast cancer, certainly, but that our team that works on the podcast, would all we would all be living with this disease. And that was really important to me. In addition, I really wanted it to not be the Lisa Laudico podcast because that would be boring. And I also felt like it needed to be... Um, focused on everyone's and the diverse stories out there. And so I wanted, I wanted a team to join me in this little, this little journey or whatever we want to call it, this little project. And so from this, this, this small team of people, we started figuring out and connecting. And so of course, as you noted, you know, Sheila McGlone is well known in our community. Um, And so we were really lucky that Sheila decided to, to join our team. And um, I have to mention our amazing team member, Shantae Randall. Mm-hmm. And she, she uh, with Sheila, I think between Sheila, Shantae, and Victoria Goldberg, uh, who's uh, our lead, one of our lead producers, um, and now she's a host of her own segment on the pod, um, all three of those incredible women were able to connect us to even more people right within the community. And that's how I got to meet um, Natalia. Shantae introduced me to Natalia. And so we, we, we are all about that. We are open to any listener to this podcast. If you're interested in, in, in you're living with metastatic breast cancer, aren't interested in any aspect of podcasting or in telling stories, writing for our blog, the table is big and wide and huge. And we have a, um, we, I like to think we have a good time doing what we do. Um, one of my, my things is I, I really want the podcast to serve our community. I want it to be um, as well done as we possibly can. And I want it to be fun for the people that are involved in it. So that's a little bit of our origin story. Wow, what an amazing story and quite a stellar rock star lineup of people you have on your tribe on your podcast. And I love the invitation because the table is wide and large. Absolutely. We're very similar in that sense here also on Breast Cancer Conversations, where I know that I can't be an expert in absolutely everything. And that's why it's so great to partner with women like yourselves to come onto the show and talk about what they are experts in and living their own experience, because that is something no one can ever take away from us. And thank you everyone for listening to our show. I would like to acknowledge that all of the information on our podcast are from personal experiences and are not a substitute for professional medical advice. You should always contact your medical care team. 
If you're looking for specific topics or would like to be a guest on our show, please feel free to reach out to me. My email is laura at survivingbreastcancer.org. Until next time, keep on thriving.